0: Lord, we thank you for this time in your word, God. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We know we cannot understand this living book without the power of you, the living God. So we ask that you would anoint us to receive the message that you have for us today. God, we know you want to breathe life into us. These aren't just words. You want to breathe life into us, God. So I pray that that would happen, that we would receive these life-giving words. You want to change our life you want to make it better than than how it was you want it to continue to to be better and better that we may experience the abundant life that you have for us lord so i pray that that would happen during this time in jesus name amen who are you what are you are you a man are you a woman Are you a child? Are you elderly? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a son? Are you a daughter? We live in a world where there is this agenda to kind of redefine the titles that we identify with. Like they don't even really exist. Like there's no such thing as a man or a woman anymore. There's no difference between a husband and a wife. There's no difference between a son or a daughter. It's this agenda that's rooted in this philosophy called relativism. Nothing is absolutely true. What's true to you, that's your truth. What's true to me, that might be my truth. But whatever you say or whatever you think is true, that's what's ultimately true. You see it on bumper stickers. You see this phrase coexist. You see it on t-shirts. And basically the idea here is that it doesn't matter. We're all the same. It doesn't matter if you practice Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Christianity. We're all the same and we're all going to the same place ultimately. That is a lie from the pits of hell. The Bible speaks absolute truths. You are either a slave to sin headed towards hell or you're a free man you're a free woman who's been redeemed by the precious blood of jesus christ so that you can live a life of freedom see paul in galatians chapter 4 from verses 21 to 31 he's going to make this very clear you are either a free man or you are either or you're a slave He's going to give us an illustration, tell us a story from the Old Testament to help us understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, A Tale of Two Covenants. A Tale of Two Covenants. A Tale of Two, you can use that for a lot of different things, right? Tale of Two Towers. Tale of Two Covenants. That's what it is. And we'll look. At the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. We'll see as Paul discusses the Old Covenant. It it leads to death. It leads to bondage. But the New Covenant, it it leads to life. It leads to freedom. And we either are under the Old Covenant or we're under the New Covenant. Paul invites us to enter into the New Covenant. Let's look what he says here. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. Tell me... You who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? See, the churches in Galatia were reverting back to the old law, the old covenant. They were reverting back to the Mosaic law. Now, these people who initially accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had some false teaching going on in the church. And these men, often referred to as Judaizers, were telling them that the cross wasn't enough. Jesus' death and resurrection, it wasn't enough for your salvation. You need to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Mosaic law. You need to keep our traditions, the traditions of our forefathers. Or else you will not be saved. They were spreading a false gospel. But these people in Galatia, these churches, this region of churches, they started believing this false gospel. They were reverting back to the Mosaic law. They were making their law keeping the basis of their relationship with God. They thought that they had to do something to earn God's love. That they had to perform works to earn God's affection. Do you ever find yourself falling into a religious routine in which you believe? By practicing that religious routine, God will love you more? And if you don't practice that religious routine then God will love you less? After being saved by grace, do you find yourself constantly striving to earn God's love for you? Do you beat yourself up when you don't keep your own standard? He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Why do you want to be back under the law? Why do you want to live a life of legalism? Why do you want to be bound to your religious routine, constantly questioning whether God loves you or not? See, even as believers, we can sometimes fall into this lifestyle of legalism, this religious routine. And we can assume if I don't read the Bible every day or if I don't pray every day or if I don't come to church at least once a week, twice if I'm a good Christian, if I don't do these specific things in my life, then I'm not confident as to whether or not God loves me. And if I don't do these things, maybe he doesn't love me. And if I am doing these things, maybe he does love me. This is a lifestyle of legalism. Sometimes we can find comfort in this legalistic lifestyle because it's based on what we do. It's based on our abilities. It's based on our works. When I live a life of legalism, no longer do I have to put my trust in God and His works and His abilities and what He's going to do. I can just trust in myself. But when we put our trust in ourselves, that's a trust that's going to disappoint because even us, even me, even you, none of us can even live up to our own moral standard. We will always fail. We'll constantly fail. We'll consistently fail. But we have this thing in us part of our simple nature that persuades us that motivates us that leads us to fall back into this legalistic type lifestyle a clear indication as to whether or not you struggle with legalism is this do you constantly find yourself talking about what you do for god or do you find yourself constantly talking about what god's been doing for you Do you constantly put so much emphasis on how busy you are, how much you have on your plate, all the things that are going on in your life? Or do you find yourself constantly praising the Lord for all he's doing in your life, how you see God showing up regardless of how much is on your plate, regardless of how busy you are, regardless of whether you read your Bible or not? What's the emphasis? What's the emphasis of your life? What's the emphasis of your communication? Uh, What's coming out of you? Because Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we're constantly talking about what we're doing for the Lord. It's an indication that we're battling legalism. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. To put yourself under the law means that it's what I do for God that makes me right with God. To be under grace means that it's what God does for me that makes me right with God. To be under the law the focus is on my performance. To be under grace the focus is on His performance. To be under the law the focus is on who am I? To be under grace the focus is on who is He? To be under the law I have to try to cover up my sin. I have to try to cover up my shame. I have to try to cover up my guilt. Under grace Jesus covers it all. He covers it all. I know we don't always intentionally fall into a legalistic lifestyle, but we're all prone to it. And if you find yourself in that place where you're questioning God's love for you, and you're under the false assumption, the lie that you need to earn God's love, that he'll love you more if you do certain things. If you're believing those things, then you need a fresh experience with the grace of God. You need a perspective shift. And I encourage you, If you're there, ask God. Say, God, I need to understand your grace. I need to experience it. I'm questioning your love for me, and I need to experience your love. I can't tell you how many times I prayed that prayer in my life, and God has shown up in miraculous ways. He blessed me abundantly when I know I didn't deserve it. I know I didn't earn it, only by the grace of God. If you're there in that spot questioning the Lord's love for you, ask Him, God, show me your love for me. Ultimately, Jesus did show us His love for us. He died on a cross for us. He paid the price for our sins. But He wants to even pour out more love on us. He wants to show His children how deeply, how madly He is in love with each and every one of us. So Paul, his heart's breaking for this church. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Do you know what you're asking for? So what he's going to do is he's going to point them back to the Old Testament, specifically a story in the Old Testament about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. And he's going to help them understand the error of their ways. They're choosing a life of slavery instead of a life of freedom, ultimately. But I find it interesting that Paul, he doesn't give a lot of details about the story. Why? Because he assumes that this church knows the story. See, the Bible calls us to be students of the word. If I mention names like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, and you don't know who I'm talking about, That's a challenge for you to look into these things. To know not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. Paul's speaking to a church that he's confident they know the word of God. They, they know what the Bible actually teaches. So as he brings up this story, they already have some understanding. Not that we're all called to be theologians or pastors or preachers or uh, scholars or whatever the case may be, but we are, all, all of us are called as children of God to be students of God's word. So when these things come up, uh, there's a familiarity with them. We, we understand some of the basic concepts and points of what Paul is trying to communicate as he communicates the story about Sarah, Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac. He's going to get into all of this here. Look at verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. So Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael first, and then he had Isaac. Now, Ishmael was born of a bondwoman, Hagar. In Genesis chapter 16, when God's promise delayed because God, he promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he's going to bless the nations through his seed. Well, in order for that to happen, he's got to have kids and he had no kids. He had no children. So after many years had passed, Sarah and Abraham, they start questioning, wait, is, is God really going to live up to this? Or, or do we need to take matters into their own hands? Well, well they did. And uh, Sarah ultimately tells Abe, she says, hey, Abe, sleep with Hagar. Then we'll have a kid together. So he sleeps with Hagar and Ishmael was born. Ishmael was born of a bondwoman, a slave woman. That means he was born into slavery. He was born as a slave child. It says there's another son. One by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. The free woman was Sarah. And Sarah had who? Isaac, the son of promise. So he goes on, verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Why? Because Abraham doubted God. Through unbelief, he attempted to fulfill God's promise in his flesh. This is point number one. We can't fulfill God's promises in our flesh. We can't fulfill God's promises in our flesh. Instead of waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he made to him, Abraham got tired of waiting, took matters into his own hands, and he slept with Hagar and had Ishmael. He was operating under the principle, you heard this one, God helps those who help themselves. That ain't in the Bible. God helps the helpless. God helps the hopeless. God helps those that are willing to put their trust in him. That are willing to believe that whole, do what he says he's going to do. Abraham was trying to help himself. And he blew it. He messed up and it caused serious problems down the road. See, we can't attempt to fulfill God's promises in our flesh. We'll only make things worse. We're called to trust God's promises, believe God's promises, hope in God's promises. But we can't fulfill them in our flesh. Maybe God promised you that you're going to have a spouse one day. Maybe you're single and God told you, hey, I'm going to provide for you a, a, a good godly husband or a good godly wife. And you got tired of waiting. So what do you do? You start making a profile on every single website that there is out there. I don't even know how many there are now. But you start making profiles everywhere. Well, well, if God said I'm going to have a husband, God God helps those who help themselves. So I better throw the bait out there. And I better let everybody on the face of the earth know that I'm looking. I want somebody. Is that waiting for God to fulfill the promise? You never know by trying to fulfill the promise in your flesh. Something... Somebody might bite that hook that wasn't intended for you. Maybe God promised you that you were going to be in full-time ministry one day. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe God told you, hey, you're going to be a missionary somewhere. You're going to be in ministry somewhere. And you start taking matters into your own hand. Looking, seeking, trying to make this thing happen on your own. Trying to force it instead of waiting for it to happen. We see God do this time and time again. He does it with Abraham. He did it with David, right? David was anointed king of Israel as a child, but he didn't become king until he was 30 years old. Sometimes there's a delay in God fulfilling his promises, but God's delay, we can't use that as an excuse to act out in our flesh and try to attempt to fulfill his promises in our own strength. We'll mess things up. We see Abraham. He was lacking faith. Which is encouraging. In a backwards way. Why? Abraham is the father of the faith. He's the father of the faith. The same God that he believed in. Is the same God that we believe in. The same God that died on a cross. Is the same God that actually visited Abraham. But he struggled with faith at times. The father of faith. As believers. Sometimes we struggle with faith. Sometimes uh, we, we doubt. God said he was going to do something in my life, but it's been a long time. It's been a year, two years, three years, ten years, uh, decades, and it still hasn't happened. God, when's it going to happen? He knows our flesh is weak. He knows we'll struggle, at faith, at, struggle with faith at times. There's a story in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus has this encounter with this man whose son is demon-possessed. And he asks the man, he says, do you believe that I can take care of your son? The father says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, Lord, there's a part of me that believes you. There's another part of me that's doubting. So God, help me with the part that's doubting. Help me with the part that's questioning. Lord, I know your word says that, that you love me. And I know at times I've experienced your love. But right now I'm doubting it, God. I'm doubting your grace. I'm doubting your mercy. I'm doubting your acceptance. God, help me with the part that doubts. Can you, can you fill the part that doubts with some more faith so that I can trust that you're able to do what you claim you're able to do? That you do love me in the way that you say you love me. So Abraham, lacking faith, he sleeps with Hagar. As Ishmael, Ishmael is the father of the nation of Islam. So this one act in the flesh caused many problems down the road. The Ishmaelites would be enemies with the Israelites since times past still to this day. Uh, uh, Muslims at war with the Jews in the Middle East. You see Muslims at war with Christians as well. Uh, And this is uh, rooted back to this one act Abraham trying to fulfill God's promise in his flesh. See, when we try to, when we attempt to fulfill God's promises in our flesh, it will have lasting consequences. And we don't even know how many people could be affected by those decisions we make to try to make things happen on our own, instead of waiting for God to do what he said he was going to do. So these two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Verse 23. But he, who was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Now, he's making this connection between Ishmael and legalism. Okay? Uh, Just as Ishmael was a slave child, he was born of a bondwoman, so too does legalism lead to bondage. He says that this was according to the flesh. In other words, legalism is according to the flesh. Legalism, or religiosity, It's a false form of spirituality. It's not actual spirituality. It may appear like spirituality, but it's not actual spirituality. He says it's living according to the flesh. We usually think of uh, living according to the flesh as like acting out, indulging in sin. Maybe it's gluttony or sexual immorality or or addiction, whatever the case may be. But Paul makes it clear that uh, just as the flesh practices those things or leads us to practice those things, so too does the flesh influence us to fall into this legalistic lifestyle, this religious routine through which we believe that through doing these things we'll be accepted by God. Now, it's important to note that legalism is not setting spiritual standards or purposing to live a life of spiritual discipline. Legalism is the worship of spiritual disciplines, okay? Legalism is the worship of spiritual disciplines, meaning I'm exalting spiritual disciplines like reading and praying and coming to church. Uh, I, I'm putting these things in the place of God, Honestly, uh, and I put these things so high on my priority list over God that I think these things actually trump God in the sense that if I don't do these things, then I can't have a relationship with God or God won't accept me or God won't love me. This is legalism exalting these spiritual disciplines to a place that when I miss my devotion life one morning, I wonder if God's going to bless me that day or, or God's going to love me that day. Or or God is looking down on me with this stern face. Just wait, hey, you better get back in your Bible, boy. That's not how it is. That's not the God we serve. But so many of us pretend like it is. Like he is like that. This is Ishmael. Legalism. Bondage. He says one was born according to the flesh, Ishmael. And he speaking of Isaac of the free woman through promise 25 years after God made the promise that Abraham would have this seed through whom which all the nations would be blessed 25 years after the promise finally God fulfilled the promises point number two wait for God to fulfill his promises wait for God to fulfill his promises It's Genesis chapter 21. In Genesis chapter 21, we see the fulfillment of this promise. Just as God had said, God did. Genesis 21, verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham, a son in his old age, at the set time of Abraham. A uh, set time of which God had spoken to him. Just as God promised, he delivered. Abraham and Sarah, they were just to wait for the promise. And as they waited, God showed up. See, so we either put our trust in our works, or we put our trust in God's miraculous work. I either take matters into my own hands and I try to earn God's affections or I accept the cross and recognize that God already loves me, that that I already have his affections, that he can't love me any more or any less, regardless of what I do, regardless of how I live. We see Isaac is a type of Christ. He's a picture of Jesus Christ. They were both sons of promise, just as Jesus was promised, so too Isaac was promised. They were both referred to as their father's only son. Even though Abraham had two sons, Isaac's often referred to as his only son, just as Jesus is God's only begotten son. Though he has many children, Jesus is only his only begotten son. They both had miraculous births. Sarah was Very old. She was past menopause, okay? Already went through it. And then she has a baby. Ladies, could you imagine that? Can you imagine that, right? Being past menopause, you're old in your 80s, and all of a sudden, God blesses you with another child. Another one. Oh, my gosh. In my old age, that's a miracle. No way. Jesus. He had a miraculous birth as well, right? He was born of a virgin. We see, both moms were actually visited by angels. We also see both sons were offered as a sacrifice by their father. Isaac was offered up, but before he was killed, God stopped him. God never intended Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. It was to point to Jesus. And on Mount Moriah, where the temple happened to be built, just outside of where the temple area was, God the Father sacrificed His only Son for us. It was Mount Moriah where Isaac was offered up. See, Isaac is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that was originally made to Abraham, that He would bless the nations through His seed. We've already discussed this. Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the seed that God was referring to in Genesis chapter 12. When we wait for God to fulfill his promises instead of trying to make them happen on our own, trying to force them to happen, then and only then will we experience the fullness and blessings of his promises. Has God promised you something? Are you still waiting for him to deliver on that promise? Has a lot of time gone by, so much time like Abraham, you start doubting, you start questioning, you start thinking maybe uh, maybe I need to take matters into my own hands or or maybe I didn't hear God right, maybe God never actually said that when he really did. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author of Hebrews points back to this promise that was made to Abraham and he says this, in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Okay, We can't swear to God, or at least we shouldn't. So if you are, stop doing that. We shouldn't swear to God, but God can swear to God. He's swearing by his own name, and his name is his character. When God reveals his name to Moses, it says he proclaims the name of the Lord. In Exodus 34, 5-7. Um, to seven, He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. In other words, when God swears by himself, he's swearing by his name. And when he's swearing by his name, he's swearing by his character. And he cannot deny his name. He cannot deny his character. He is a promise keeper. Everything he says he's going to do, he's going to do. Regardless of what your circumstances look like. Regardless of, of whether or not it seems like this promise is impossible to fulfill. Imagine Sarah being through menopause. God says you're going to have a child. No way. She laughed at God. She laughed at him in disbelief. That's why Isaac is named Isaac. It means laughter. But he still came through. He's faithful to fulfill his promises. That's who he is. Look back at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 14. Saying, surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath, For confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. We can have hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as I mentioned, is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. Our hope is to be anchored in none other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. You think about a boat out to the, uh, out at sea. A storm comes. If that boat is anchored in something solid, that boat isn't getting swept out to sea. But if that boat has no anchor, that boat is getting swept out to sea. But it's also important that the boat is anchored in something that's stable. If the anchor of the boat is in something soft, too soft, like really soft sand, then the anchor's not going to hold up. And that boat, again, is going to be swept to sea. So it's not enough to have an anchor. The anchor has to be in the right thing. But if that anchor is in something solid, then that boat will stand through the storm. It'll stand through the trials. It'll be immovable, steadfast. See, if our hope is in anything other than the person and work of jesus christ then it is a hope that is going to disappoint if our anchor our hope is in anything other than jesus christ and his promises on our life his promise that we will experience eternal life with him in fellowship with him if our hope is in opportunities or if our hope is in experiences if our hope is in our future job career path whatever the case may be if our hope is in anything other than jesus christ then it is a hope that will disappoint if your hope is in your husband and his good behavior if your hope is in your wife if our hope is in anything other than jesus christ it will be a hope that disappoints the christian life is to be marked by faith. in the promises of God. And the work of Jesus Christ. Look back at Galatians chapter 4. Abraham finally. He waited. The promise was fulfilled. Isaac is born. Verse 24. Which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai. Which gives birth to bondage. Which is Hagar. For this Hagar. Is Mount Sinai and Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. He says these two births are symbolic, they represent two covenants. What's a covenant? It's a binding agreement. In this case, it's a binding agreement between God and man, both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's a testament. We have Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's a contract. So he speaks of Ishmael and Isaac symbolizing the Old Covenant of the law and the New Covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about the Old Covenant first. He says in verse 24 which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Mount Sinai is significant because the Ishma- Ishmaelites actually uh, dwelt in the Sinai Peninsula. It's also significant. Why? Because God gave Moses the Ten Commandments On Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19 verse 20. We see that the law that was given to Moses. Paul tells us. Leads to bondage. This is point number three. The law brings bondage. The law brings bondage. If you flip with me to Romans chapter 7. Paul puts it like this. In Romans chapter 7 verse 1. And we'll go back there a little bit later. If you want to keep a finger there. In Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no uh, she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So what he's saying here is that we were bound to the law as a woman is bound to a husband. We were bound to be faithful to keep the law in its entirety just as a woman is bound to not commit adultery against her husband. And if she leaves her husband or commits adultery, she's considered an adulteress. If we break the law in the old covenant, if we break the law, he's saying it's it's symbolic of of being an adulteress. But what's the problem? Everybody broke the law. Nobody can keep the law. I would love to talk to somebody that says that they've kept all Ten Commandments even their whole life. Right. Everybody they're, they're probably lied at least once. Right. Not other things. We can't keep the law. So we're bound to this thing that we can't keep. There's a curse connected if you don't keep it. It says the wages of sin is death. It's clear in the Old Testament as well. People agreed to the law. Yeah, we'll keep it, but they didn't keep it. And there's a curse connected to it. But so often, we can find ourselves turning back to being under this law. Under this law of legalism. Once again in which we think that we will earn God's affections. We will earn God's love for us in our life. We put ourselves under the law. It's like this. Being under the law is like being married to an abusive. Both verbally and physically abusive husband. An overcritically husband. overcritical husband. Being under the law is like coming home every day knowing that what's waiting for you is a whooping. Knowing that you didn't live up to the standard. Knowing that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, your husband is never going to say you're good enough. You don't add up. And because you don't add up, there are consequences. You get beat. You get yelled at. You get screamed at. This is what it's like being under the law. We're putting ourselves in this bondage. We're putting ourselves under the dominion, he says, under the authority of an abusive husband. One that doesn't care about us. One that will never say good job. One that will constantly bash us and beat us down. This is what we're doing when we put ourselves under the law. Because we can't measure up. We don't add up. We can't meet the standard. We all fall short. So we actually end up being the ones that end up abusing ourselves and beating ourselves up and speaking these hateful thoughts into our minds and meditating on these lies. So this is the old covenant. Ishmael represents the old covenant. Look back at verse 25. Galatians chapter 4. For this Hagar... Is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Jerusalem speaks both um, geographically and spiritually. Okay, Jerusalem. What he's saying here is the capital of religiosity, which leads to bondage. Okay, but Jerusalem isn't just the place. Jerusalem is also the people. Jerusalem it represents god's people who are bound in this religious lifestyle and we still see it today in jerusalem many jews bound to this religious routine thinking they if they don't keep up with it then god's not going to accept them god's not going to love them god's not going to want them so they perform these works they have this these traditions and these routines that they go by Because they can't be confident in the Lord's love for them. It says in verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. Which is the mother of us all. Paul here refers to God's own Jerusalem in heaven. See Christianity. At least real Christianity. It comes from heaven. Not the earth. It's not something created by man. It is something created by God. See God created relationship with man. Man didn't create relationship with God, as some assume. And it's God who pursues relationship with man, even before man pursues relationship with God. God was reaching out to you before you responded. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless my Father, or no one comes to me unless my Father draws him. Before you turned to the Lord, He had been wooing you. He had been trying to get your attention. He was inviting you into relationship. And through this relationship, we see... In verse 26, but the Jerusalem uh, above is free. This relationship with God is only offered by faith or by grace through faith. It cannot be earned and it can only be received because of the finished work of Jesus Christ through his death, burial and resurrection. Through this relationship and through this relationship alone can we experience freedom. Point number four, grace brings freedom. Grace brings freedom. Whereas the law brings bondage, grace brings freedom. It's Romans, and I told you we'd be back there. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. It's the same text, just continuing on. Therefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the simple passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. He says, when you accept Jesus Christ. You die to the law. Why? Because you die to self. As Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. When we accept Jesus Christ, the old man spiritually gets put to death. We're a new creation in Christ. And the new creation that was created in Christ is no longer married to the law. It's married to who? It's married to Jesus Christ. We're dead to the law. We're no longer under the law. Meaning, the abusive husband died. He's dead. So why go back to him? He's dead. You can't even go back to him. You can pretend like he's there, but he's gone. Grace breaks freedom. And this is what Paul's getting at. You don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to beat yourself up like that anymore. You don't have to beat yourself up when you don't keep your standard. You don't have to question God's love for you. He says you're married to him. And God, he hates divorce. He will never divorce you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He promises that. He will never walk away from you. He's in it for the long haul. He's committed for eternity. You're no longer under the law. You're under grace. We don't have to earn God's love. We don't have to strive for it. We simply have to receive it. That's why Jesus, he says this in Matthew chapter eleven. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's only possible. Why? Because he bore our burden. He fulfilled the law to a T, even the curse associated with the law. He he died on the cross. He paid the price. And now he's able to say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, in light of what he knew he was going to do. He says, following me is easier than being under the law in one sense. Why? Because Jesus isn't asking us to do stuff for him. He's asking us to do stuff with him. Don't get it twisted. Jesus isn't asking us to just serve him. He's asking us to serve with him. He wants to do it with us. And sometimes we can fall into this mentality that I need to do this for Jesus. And I need to do this for Jesus. And I need to do this for Jesus. And he goes, child, I'm asking you to do this with me. I'm not asking you to do anything by yourself. I don't want you to try to do this Christian life alone. I'm here to do it with you. I'm here to come alongside you. If you find yourself constantly thinking in your mind that you're doing all these things for Jesus, then it's legalism. He's not asking you to do stuff for him. He's not asking you to do stuff with him. Let me show you. It's Luke chapter 10. Verse 40. Actually, let's just read the whole story. Verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to uh, said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha struggled with legalism. She was so busy about serving the Lord. That she neglected her relationship with the Lord. She's like, I didn't even ask you to do that. Why are you doing a bunch of stuff I didn't ask you to do? Why are you putting more on your plate than I asked you to do? I just want you to spend time with me. And when we're going to do things, we're going to do things together. When I ask you to do things, I'm going to do it with you. I'm not just asking you to do things for me. See, the freedom that exists in Christ, it comes not from living for Christ. It comes from living with Christ. Doing life with Christ. That's the only way that we can live for him anyways. It's by the power of his Holy Spirit. He comes, he lives inside of us. Everything he asks us to do. He says, I'm going to do it with you. That's why he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest for your souls. If you're not finding rest, if you're weary, if you're burdened, then you're doing the Christian thing wrong. I'm sorry. You're doing it wrong. In Jesus... We have a Sabbath every single day. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. We can find rest in him every single day. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be times where you're, where you're tired and you're weary. But if you're constantly, always tired and weary and wanting to give up, you're trying to probably do too much for the Lord instead of doing life with the Lord. He continues on Galatians chapter 4. Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So, Paul, he quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1, this uh, woman, he's alluding to the new covenant connected to Sarah. Right, she was barren. She already went through menopause. She was in her old age, and somehow this barren woman ends up having more children than anyone else. What he's speaking of is the new covenant. The new covenant would produce more children than the old covenant. You look at Christianity today; it's the largest religion in the world. Uh, you look at Judaism; it's small. It's it's a very small percentage of people that actually practice Judaism. He says rejoice O barren you do not bear break forth and shout you who are not in labor for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband just as it is miraculous for a barren woman to give birth so too is it a miraculous event when one single person enters the kingdom of god says this is a miracle what's happening here just as it was a miracle with sarah With Mary having Jesus, so too is it a miracle when any child comes to God. When any person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He says there's going to be more under the New Covenant. There's going to be more miraculous births. We see Paul speaks of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 he speaks of the greatness of the new covenant the glory of the new covenant versus the glory of the old covenant he says this in second corinthians chapter 3 verse 7 but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones speaking of the law okay was glorious so that the children of israel could not look steadily at the face of moses because of the glory of his countenance which glory was passing away so When God would have encounters with Moses, specifically when he received the law, but this would happen generally when Moses had encounters with God, this glory, the glory of God would shine on Moses, and and Moses would reflect this glory. Okay, But then he'd cover it up. Why? Because it says the glory was fading away. Meaning the glory of the law was fading away. It was a temporary covenant. It wasn't meant to last forever. Moses was covering up the fact that the glory was fading. that The law was fading out. It's a temporary thing, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of a glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So he speaks of the glory between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He says the glory of the New Covenant... It's so much greater than the glory of the Old Covenant. It's better. The glory of the Old Covenant is fading away. The glory of the New Covenant, it increases. As we'll say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord becoming more glorious because not only are more people being transformed but the people that have received jesus christ are experiencing a greater level of transformation it continues on it grows it doesn't stay the same says galatians chapter 4 verse 28 now we brethren as isaac was are children of promise as christians we don't identify with ishmael we are not slaves we are not in bondage. We are children of the promise. We are free men. We are free woman, women. That's point number five. We are children of the promise. We are children of the promise. The promise. What promise? Well, the promise that was originally made to Abraham that God would bless the nations through his seed. But God built on that promise over time. Paul specifically speaking of the promise of the new covenant the new covenant was promised to the saints of old we see in ezekiel chapter 36 in ezekiel chapter 36 we also have jeremiah chapter 31 we won't get in, uh, into that today but we see this promise that was made this new covenant that the old covenant was for a period of time but there would be this new covenant that would come in ezekiel chapter 36 verse 24 It says, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. New covenant was originally promised to the Jews. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. This new covenant where God says no longer are you going to look at a piece of paper and try to follow what it says. I'm going to put my desires in you. I'm going to put my heart in you. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. I'm going to put my divine nature in you. So it's not just you trying to follow a to-do list. The desire of your heart. It's changed. No longer a heart of stone. He says I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. This promise. The saints of old. They longed for this promise. In Hebrews chapter 11, I'll read it for you. It says in verse 35. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials A trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The saints of old were longing for this promise of the new covenant. They were longing for the Messiah to come on the scene so that they might enter into the new covenant. They've suffered persecution, scourgings, beheadings, being sawn in two, longing for the covenant That we get to enter into now. That we get to be a part of now. Jesus makes this clear that he came to give all an opportunity to enter into the new covenant in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, as he institutes communion, he says in verse 26... He says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many of the remission of sins. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're able to enter into the new covenant. There hasn't been an era on the face of the earth. That's been more easy to enter into a relationship with God than now. Since Jesus died and rose, is the easiest time to enter a relationship with God. Easiest time that there's ever been throughout history, the last 2,000 years. This is the promise that we can have fellowship with God, not just now, but for all eternity. Paul goes on, Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, got a couple more verses. Galatians 4.29, he says, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Okay. so in Genesis chapter 21, after Isaac was born, he was weaned. They had this big celebration for him. They had this big feast. The son of promise is finally weaned. He, He can eat solid food now. But Ishmael started mocking him. He started persecuting him. Why? Because he was jealous. He's a slave kid. And he got this promised son. They're having this big party for him. So he started picking on him. He started persecuting him. Paul says, this is symbolic as well. He says, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Ishmael persecuted Isaac, even so it is now. During this time period, the Jews were persecuting Christians. They were killing Christians. Why? Because of jealousy. In Acts chapter 13, verse 45. In Acts chapter 13, verse 45, it says, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So the Jews were jealous that the Christians were claiming to have a relationship with Yahweh. And I believe something about it was so real to them. They recognized there's something different about these people. But because our hearts are hard, we're going to deny the truth just as Paul did when Stephen was persecuted and killed. Just as Ishmael was jealous of Isaac's relationship with his father, so too were the Jews jealous and still are of Christians' relationships with Yahweh, with their God. The Bible says in Romans 11 verse 11 that God's going to use the jealousy of the Jews to actually bring them to the Lord. The jealousy that they have of the Christians because the Christians actually believe in Yahweh and they can see evidence that they have entered into the new covenant. They have had changed hearts. They have had changed lives. There is something different about them. We are seeing the glory of God in their life. Bring them to this place of jealousy. God says he's going to use it to bring people unto himself. The Jews specifically. Are people jealous of your relationship with God? Are people jealous of your relationship with God? When they see God and how he shows up in your life and the relationship that you have with them, are they jealous? Do they covet it? Like a spiritual jealousy, I'm saying, a godly jealousy. Because they should. People should look at your life and go, man, that's the type of relationship I want with God. Ultimately, we're all called to follow Jesus, but people should be able to look at your life and go, man... (laughs) I see God working in that person's life. I see God blessing them. I see Him changing. I'm, I see Him growing. Like, dude, there's something different about them, and I want that. Even if they have the Lord. God uses this godly jealousy to bring people closer to Himself. That's what He's doing with the Jews as we speak. So He says, Ishmael, He persecuted Isaac. That's happening today. But it wasn't just happening in Paul's day, it's happening in our day. You see, most persecution, well, a lot of it, it doesn't just come from the world. A lot of persecution comes from other religious organizations. Some of the greatest persecution comes from uh, religious legalistic organizations. Has anybody been to the Harvest Festival? before yeah like uh harvest crusade or whatever i mean yeah harvest crusade i never been there personally but people told me that they walk around we we're talking about this at our home group the other way uh other week people told me that they walk around uh, like there's certain church groups that walk around there with signs that says you're all going to hell you're all going to hell you got to follow the true church you got to be a part of our church if you're not a part of our church then your relationship with god means nothing the cross means nothing for you if you're not a part of our church it's religious persecution On a more extreme level, you look at Islam, radical Islam, and the persecution that is spread across this world through radical Islam. Now, Islam did start as a peaceful religion, but you better believe that the message of peace only lasted so long. Muhammad realized that the peace message wasn't working, so what did he do? He took the sword. And he started spreading the message with the sword, and that's when it got effective. That's when it spread. Why? You're either going to accept all, or I'm going to kill you. It's one or the other. So people accepted him; they were forced into it. And we see today so much of the persecution that happens in this world towards well, Jews and Christians it's from radical Muslims. But that's part of it. Persecution is mark is a mark of true Christianity. It's something we can expect. If we're really practicing a Christian faith that the Bible teaches, then we can expect to be persecuted, at least on some level. That doesn't mean martyrdom, but it does mean something. And I'll tell you this, if you've never experienced any type of persecution in your life, then you probably aren't practicing a biblical faith. I'm just being real, because Jesus promised it. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. Speaking to his followers. Paul says, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Martin Luther has this quote, or had this quote. He was alive it says, if someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim he is a Christian. Speaking of this text specifically. So he goes on. Hey, that's part of it. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bond woman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Paul says, what does the scripture say? Paul's like, it's not about my opinion. It's about what the Bible actually says. This is what the Bible actually says. The Old Testament actually says this. And what does it say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. After Ishmael persecuted Isaac, Sarah had had it. She says, no more. Hagar and Ishmael are out. Abraham, you need to kick them out. And God agreed. He said, yep, you got to kick them out. Cast out the bondwoman. You got to get rid of them. You got to do what Sarah says. So he did. Just as Ishmael and Isaac weren't able to live in harmony under the same roof. Neither can legalism and grace live in harmony in a Christian's life. They can't. They're opposed to one another. They're contrary to one another. One says, I embrace and immerse myself in the love of God. I know I don't earn it. I just receive it because he's so good, because he's so great. I did nothing to deserve this. and I'm just going to dwell in it. I'm going to immerse myself in it. And I'm not going to beat myself up because i got a God in heaven who loves me, who is willing to die for me. Legalism says, I don't know about all that. Maybe, but I'm not sure. Because I'm not sure, I'm going to keep striving. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep questioning whether God loves me or not. He says, you've got to cast out the bondwoman. you got to cast off the, the legalism. You've got to cast off the, the flesh. You can't have freedom and bondage. In the same place, legalism has no presence in the place of God. The flesh has no presence or in God's presence. There shall be no flesh. there shall be no legalism. In his presence, there's freedom from all those things." Then he says here in verse 30, "For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Guess what the son of the bondwoman got. Guess what Ishmael got as far as an inheritance? Nothing. He got nothing. Not one penny, nothing. He almost died. God took care of him because he said he's going to bless the descendants of Abraham. God had to keep his promise. But he didn't get any of the inheritance. Your legalistic lifestyle doesn't increase your heavenly inheritance. It doesn't. We can't earn our heavenly inheritance. We simply receive it. We accept it. And you'll gain no heavenly inheritance if your trust is in some religious routine or some legalistic lifestyle, if your trust is in anything other than the person and work of Jesus Christ, he says the bondwoman, her son, he had no inheritance. He received nothing. Lastly, it says in verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. He says you're not children of the bondwoman. You're not to relate with Ishmael. You're to relate with Isaac. You're sons and daughters of the promise. You're not children of the flesh. You're you're children of freedom. You're not children of bondage. If this is true, if we're sons and daughters of the promise, if we're children of freedom and not bondage, if we're children of grace and not legalism, then we should act like it. We should walk in it. As long as we live under the law, we're living as slaves. And we 'll spend our whole lives trying to please our master we 'll spend our whole lives trying to uh, appease our abusive husband, and we 'll try as hard as we can to live up to his standard and guess what it 's never going to happen every time we come home we 're going to get beat up we 're going to get criticized we 're going to get ridiculed because we can 't live up to it. The law's a cruel master. On the other hand, when we receive the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith, we're dead to the law. The law is no longer our master. Jesus Christ is our master. Jesus Christ hes a loving groom. He's a loving husband. He's a gentle groom. He's an encouraging groom. He's one that's willing to die in our place. This is the type of groom that this is. You see, when we accept Jesus Christ, no longer is the law the dominating principle, but love is the dominating principle. And love is always greater than the law. As Christians, our motivation to live for Christ has to be His love for us and our love for Him. If my motivation to live for Christ is wrapped up in trying to earn God's love for me, then I'm failing in my Christian walk. If my motivation to live for Christ is in anything other than love, then I'm practicing some form of legalism. If I'm doing it to win his affections, I'm practicing legalism. If I'm doing it because I'm not sure if he loves me, I'm practicing legalism. And we see, as the text taught us, that legalism always leads to bondage. We have the opportunity to be married to one or two husbands. One, he's gonna abuse you, he's gonna criticize you, he's gonna ridicule you, you will never be good enough. The other one, he'll take you just the way you are, and he'll love on you, he died for you, he'll comfort you, he'll bless you, he'll encourage you, he'll help you find out who you really are, he'll help you find your true identity. That you don't have to live as a slave child. That you're a child of God. What husband do you want to go home to? We each have a moral, biblical responsibility and obligation to make that decision. Paul says it's one or the other. It's an absolute truth. Either you're a son of the bondwoman, You're an Ishmael. Or you're a son of the free woman. You're an Isaac. Either you're bound to this abusive husband or you're bound to the husband that took the abuse for you. They got beat up for you. They got bruised for you. They got cursed for you so that you wouldn't have to deal with that bully anymore. Which husband do you choose? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you for your grace. Lord, and I pray for every person in this room, God, if they question your love for them. Lord, that you would pour your love out on them, God. That they would know your grace, Lord. That if they're doubting, if they're uncertain, God, I pray that you would show up in such a mighty way, such a miraculous way. That they would see who you are. That you're a God that's not just dwelling in heaven who's unconcerned, but you're a God Who's among us, Emmanuel, God, with us, and you want to do life with us. You want to show us how much you love us, God. I pray that every person in this room would know the height and width and depth and length of your love, God, that surpasses all knowledge and understanding. And I pray if they doubt, if they question, Lord, today, this week, this month, in your perfect timing, you would show them how much you love them. Lord, that you would rekindle that relationship with them. God, that they would be awakened to the reality what this whole grace thing is all about. We don't have to beat ourselves up anymore. We don't have to come home to an abusive husband. As you say, come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and you'll give us rest. I pray that we would embrace that calling, Lord, that we would embrace you. In Jesus' name, amen.